You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. We're your hosts, James Creech and Luke Wang. And today we're joined by Neil Mant, founder and CEO of Mant VR. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Nice to be here. Excited to have you. Tell us a little bit about Mant VR and when people say, what do you do? How do you explain it? I would say at my core, I'm a producer. You know, it's interesting. For many years, I've been in Hollywood and I sort of have gone in and out of different things. You know, I'm a, I'm a director. I'm a director, producer. I'm a writer, director, producer. It's kind of like we, we fall into these these titles. But as I look back at my 25 years here in Hollywood, you know, the most consistent thing that I have done is, is take projects from beginning to end as a producer. So I'm a producer. And so as I moved into virtual reality, that's really the key role that I'm in. I've directed some of the content that I've put together, but I still think of myself mostly as a producer. And so Mant VR, we are a turnkey production facility. We take concepts of VR videos and 360 videos from idea to completion. Right now, we're doing a large expansion in creating serialized content. That is one of the biggest holes that exist. It's not one of the biggest. It's the biggest hole in uh, VR content is serialized content. For the most part, it's all just been single uh, experiences for brands or sort of one-offs where people have been testing the equipment. And so what we're trying to do at Man VR uh, in the coming months is produce a minimum of 20 different shows with a minimum of 10 episodes per show. So 200 episodes of serialized content in VR before Christmas. And nobody has done that so far. What do you think that is? Because it's hard. (laughs) You know, I mean, straight up, it is hard. It is one of the harder projects I've been a part of. You know, there are different kinds of rigs to shoot with. You have GoPro rigs, which use multiple cameras. And then there are a few things that have come to the market, like the Samsung Gear 360, the Ricoh Theta, and those don't have good quality. You know, I pride myself when you look at my, my background from Mant Brothers into Mant VR, you look at my stuff. I don't think I have any stinkers in my past. You know, I, you know, you can say, well, that wasn't a huge hit, but it, it's not bad. Like, I'm very proud of everything I've done. And so th- that same standard has to exist with Mant VR is high quality. So that means that we can only do limited things on the Samsung Gear 360 or nothing on the Ricoh Theta because the quality isn't even what the Samsung is, but primarily on the GoPro, which requires stitching, very specific camera placement, and in the editing, it's a 360 space. So where do I look when I put it on? We have to take all of that into consideration when we're shooting it and also in the editing. So there's no confusion, there's no nausea. And so we've been working very hard over the last year at coming up with formats that work within the limitations of VR uh, and tell a very cohesive story. And it's taken me a year and a half of straight VR work to get to the point where now I can start putting out consistent content. And that's in addition to the 25 years of previous media experience as a producer. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you moved to LA over 25 years ago and have been working in Hollywood, writer, director, producer. Tell us a little bit about that background and what made you want to pursue a career in entertainment. Sure. So I actually started before then. When I was 10 years old, they were making a movie by my church in Michigan. I grew up in a suburb of Detroit. I tell people, I say, pick any John Hughes movie and that is my environment. 
you know, whether it was Ferris Bueller's Day Off or 16 Candles or Pretty in Pink, I lived in a suburb of a Midwestern city about an hour outside of the city. And it was, again, very similar. And same time frame. I was the same age as the characters in all those John Hughes movies, you know, Breakfast Club. I was 15 when they were 15. So they were making this movie by my house and I went down there. I mean, imagine Hollywood comes to your town. I mean, and I always wanted to be in some way in entertainment and I, I had no connection. My mother was a nurse and became a teacher and my dad was in life insurance that nobody in my family had any kind of background or connections. And so I went down there and I was like, who's in charge here? And these grips are looking, you know, they're shooting for an afternoon, a wedding scene in a church, you know, not expecting some 10 year old punk on his bike to come down demanding to know who's in charge. And someone points the finger to Alex Karras. Alex had been a NFL player with the Detroit Lions years earlier and had made his way into Hollywood. He was later on the show Webster. You guys ever see that show? Mm-mm. You're young. There was, <laughs> there was a big show in the 80s. And it had this guy, Alex Harris was the father, and they had this kid who was little, I mean little, and he was Webster. And he was cute and funny, and it was a big big star. Anyway, he went on to be friends with Michael Jackson, too. Webster did. Interesting. Yeah, go figure, right? Anyway, Alex Harris, who now is an established movie producer and star of a television show, is in my hometown. And he's producing this film. And I went up to him, and I was like, they say you're in charge. And he's like, yeah, I, I am in charge. I guess, sort of-ish. You know, how can I help you? I said, well, I want to be in show business. And he introduced me to the casting director who was like taken aback by this kid demanding to be in show (laughs) business. And she said, go home and get a photo. So I got my bike, raced home and we had the photos on the wall from, you know, school pictures. And mine was an eight by 10 and it was from my football picture, a little little league football. And I cracked the glass, grabbed the photo, went back and handed it to this lady. And I'm like, here you go. And she takes it and she says, all right, well, write your name and your phone number on the back and then go home and look up in the yellow pages under motion pictures and try and find an agent. So I did that. And then I went home and I looked it up and there was nothing listed in the yellow pages. And that was the end of that discussion. (laughs) And then six weeks later, I got a random phone call. Now, remember, I'm 10. This is 1980, right? I get a phone call. My phone calls my house and they're like, we'd like to speak with Neil Mant. My parents answer like, Neil, you have a phone call, you know? And I'm like, yeah. And they said, well, hey, we got your photo. We're a talent agency. Would you like to come audition for a Buick commercial tomorrow? I was like, yes, I will be there. What time and where? And so they give me an address. And I said, my mother, I I need a ride tomorrow at 11 a.m. I have an appointment for an audition for a commercial. (laughs) And my mother was like, you are in school at 11 a.m. tomorrow. You're not going anywhere. So I went to school and then I called this old lady who lived next door who was clueless. And I was like, I have a problem in school. I need a ride. You have to come pick me up. So she came and picked me up and I went to the audition and I got the commercial. Oh, wow. And then I started doing commercials. And I did that for a few years. And my parents were always like, this is ridiculous. I mean, this kid's doing commercials. Like, this, you know, this is not going to last is what they would always say. And at 15, you know, I had gone through puberty and was looking kind of weird. And there's not a lot of parts for weird looking kids. And I read an article about public access. And I was like, this is a huge opportunity. I can make my own show. Now, this is 1985. And at the time... Wayne's World. We all saw the movie, right? That movie came out in 1991. So that's what really put public access on people's radar. So I'm way in advance of that. And I start calling record companies. And I'm like, I have a television show. And I have some on TV in Detroit. And they thought, well, this is Detroit, sixth largest market in the country. Sure. I said, I want to interview rock stars when they would come through town. Whether it was Paul Abdul or Rod Stewart or whatever, I would get backstage passes to these concerts and do interviews. And it was like the movie Almost Famous. You guys ever seen that movie? Love that movie. I, I was that kid at 15. 
And they were always like, ah, this guy seems kind of young, you know? But I had camera equipment and it all looked very professional because the public access had decent equipment. So I did that for a few years. And then my uh, sophomore year in college, I won the National College Emmy Award. And then I got a job at the NBC affiliate in Detroit as a news reporter. And so at 19 or 20, I was on camera reporting. Wanted at 19, on, on camera at 20. Did that for a year. And then I was like, I'm going to move to LA and be a big time player. I've conquered Detroit. I got to go to LA. And so I come here. I park on the corner of Lexington and Mansfield. And the first night, my car was broken into and all my stuff was stolen. And that was my welcome to Los Angeles moment. And so I started fresh with nothing. I ended up getting a job with Disney in a pilot program where they were producing talk shows. And it was 1991 to, and talk shows were at the height. I mean, it, everybody was on the air at that time. Jerry Springer, Sally Jesse Raphael, Oprah. I mean, it, that was the gold age of talk. And Disney was trying to be a part of that. And so they were piloting these shows. They do six-week runs here on KCAL, which they owned. And I was one of the producers that they had there. And so I did all kinds of TV shows. And at that end of that run, I got hired by ABC because I had been freelancing doing news reporting for some outlets. ABC hired me just to do like a week on a little event that was happening downtown called the OJ trial. And that ended up becoming eight months. And so I was the producer of the trial for ABC News, the entire trial. And when that was done, I was like, you know, I came here to make movies. I'm just going to make movies. And so, again, like a lot of my life, sort of cluelessly, I was like, I'm just going to make a movie. And I maxed my credit cards and wrote a script. And within, I went from, hey, I'm going to make a movie to finished film in under three months. And it starred Henry Thomas, who was Elliot and E.T., and he had just come off Legends of the Fall. And uh, Scott Thompson from The Kids in the Hall, great Canadian sketch comedy show. And it had a theatrical release and then Showtime and HBO bought it. And that sort of began, began my movie career. How did all of that come to pass? How did uh, you meet those actors? How did you line up, you know, everything around the theatrical release? Yeah. So I knew nothing. I mean, you could not know less than I knew. I mean, I was, at the, I was just like, hey, I'm going to make a movie. I have no education in it. I've never studied it. And the largest crew I had ever worked with in my life was two people. And movies are very different, 35 millimeter. And so I understood story. And that's one thing I've always been very good at is understanding how to tell a story. And I also understood my limitations, which were that I did not have the proper education and I needed to surround myself with the best possible people. So I had a friend who had just gone to AFI and just graduated. And he introduced me to basically that entire graduating class of all the key people, the director of photography that was the best one there, the best editor. And I went to every one of them and I'm like, I'm going to make this movie. It's going to happen quickly. And this is your opportunity to be the DP or your opportunity to be the editor. The trade out is you have to deliver in your department and I'll make sure it doesn't go off the rails. And for Henry, I literally just called his agent. I was like, we're shooting in three weeks. This is happening. Here's the offer. And I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything. And so I just put all the pieces together. And then once it all sort of was lined up, I was like, oh, I have to get the money. So I just started applying for more credit cards. And then I borrowed some money from members of my family, maxed all the credit cards and made the movie. And that That's incredible. It. That's a big gamble. Yeah. It was this ridiculous gamble. And it put me in a lot of debt for many years. I got hired to direct two movies after that that were family films with a lot of TV names. People like Corey Feldman and Estelle Getty and, you know, Richard Thomas and the Waltons. And I, and I was, a, you know, a hired film director. But I, the, my career as a director, it didn't take off. You know, it's like you have to get on a certain trajectory and things need to really fall in line to become, you know, Spielberg. First of all, I didn't have the talent. 
So, I, I mean, I, I know how to tell the story, but to become like a Darren Aronofsky or a Spielberg, you know, it's like those guys have a vision that's really unbelievable. And so I, I could do the mechanics of filmmaking, but to become somebody of an incredible substance, those people are rare. And, you know, I didn't win Sundance or win the right festival with my first film, Hijack in Hollywood. And so I wasn't on that trajectory. And in 2000, after making three films and being here for, you know, seven years, eight years, whatever, I, I was like, I'm not going to make it as this big feature director. I got to figure out a career. And I just turned 30 and I was like, you know, I think TV is really where I want to be. And I was able to get a job at, at, with NBC at the Olympics in Sydney as a producer. And so I, I did a stint there. And during that time, I was kind of positioning myself like what would be next. And I had an opportunity to pitch a very high level executive at ESPN. And again, this is time, a lot of life is timing. I mean, so much of it is. And so I was able to pitch this executive and he was on the, the trajectory just going up. And he was a brilliant guy, a guy named Mark Shapiro, unbelievably talented and making all the right moves to the right place. And I hit him at the right moment with an idea that was essentially the amazing race, but for sports in reality. Now, this is 2001. And at the time, there was only one reality show on TV, and that was Survivor. And it was massive. And everybody was, the word, the buzzword reality was just huge. And people were like, ah, reality, I got to have reality. And I pitched him this reality show that's two teams of four. You're going to be dropped off in Times Square with just the clothes on your backs. And you have to beg, borrow, and deal your way across the country, talk your way into professional sporting events, and do these crazy tasks like catch a 35-yard pass from an NFL quarterback, sing the national anthem at a major league baseball game, drive the pace car at a NASCAR event, set it up on your own. And then we would document the whole thing. And it was a great show. We were all set up to do the show and we were going to begin shooting it or actually just, just about to begin shooting on September 12th, 2001. And we all know what happened the day before. And so I had once again put myself really in debt. I didn't have a contract signed yet. The show was put on an indefinite hold. And then six, seven months later, you know, after really sort of struggling, the network was like, all right, we're ready to go forward. You know, we're going to make this happen. And that became the beginning of my TV company, Mant Brothers, which my brother and I partnered on. And then we created uh, many shows over the years. The next big one was Jim Rome is Burning, which we did for 10 years. And then we sold shows to sci-fi like you know, Destination Truth, which has then now migrated to Travel Channel uh, with Josh Gates. And that's a show called Expedition Unknown. And we had shows on the Food Network and Showtime and just a myriad of television. How did your brother get into entertainment and what made you guys decide to want to team up? He didn't really have a, a focus in, in college. Uh, he loved sports, incredibly knowledgeable about it. And he graduated school and had an opportunity to go to ESPN in Connecticut. Now, this is 1992. ESPN now is this massive campus, huge uh, and at the time, it was like two buildings. And all they really cared about were getting people who knew sports, like really knew sports. And so they, their application was a verbal test, and it was a sports quiz. And if you passed the test, then you got a job. And they were like, we will teach you television. And so he went there, and he aced the test. Here's a question. What is the Vesna trophy? <laughs> Bad question to start off on. That's the questions yeah. they have. That's yeah. what it is. What is the Vesna Trophy? What is the Vesna Trophy? That I've never heard of, actually. It is the trophy for the best goalie in the NHL. Okay. Tell me about the running game of the Cleveland Browns offense. Currently in 2016? Yeah. So they have a pretty strong run game that's anchored by Joe Thomas on the left tackle side, 
The other linemen are decent, not great. They lost uh, their center, Alex Mack, I think, last year, who went to a new team. They've got a pass catching back, Duke Johnson, that's actually pretty decent. I think he's better than the starter, uh, Isaiah Crowell. So he, he would be in contention. <laughs> I mean, look, the Vesna one is a... That's I'm not a, a hockey guy. No, no, of course. Listen, that's a crazy question. <laughs> like, 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 how many people know the Vesna trophy? You have to be a serious in Canada, hockey maybe guy. a lot. <laughs> hey, look, that's, a, that's so specific. I mean, his response on, on the Browns is very strong. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that, that you're, you would have a good conversation to continue. So my brother, he answered the Vesna trophy question. He answered everything. And they hired him. And he then learned through their internal training program how to tell that one minute story and the 30 second highlights, you know, which changed our society so much. ESPN and the highlight in the 90s. I mean, now we're mobile. So it's, you know, it's all different. Like you're not watching sports now. You're watching for the entertainment value. But but he came up through those ranks and he worked there at ESPN for four years. And then he moved out of Bristol into New York and just started freelancing on things like the U.S. Open tennis for USA. And then eventually got hired by... Major League Baseball, where he worked on This Week in Baseball, and then was hired by NBA Entertainment. And then that's then he was with Bob Costas doing On the Record with Bob Costas when we partnered. And so he had been a very established sports producer. And when we got the Rome show, you know, my brother handled the day-to-day of that show. And it was a great partnership. So it sounds like you moved to L.A. and went from being in front of the camera to behind the camera. And at the same time, risking it all, right, to make this happen. So have you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? How did you get comfortable with that level of risk? It's funny. The word entrepreneur, it sounded, I mean, growing up for me, entrepreneur now, it's like, I'm an entrepreneur, you know. (laughs) But when I was a kid, an entrepreneur, it sounded very hoity-toity, you know, and it, it sounded not real. I understand how real entrepreneurial efforts are and how you can be very unsuccessful and be a very authentic entrepreneur. And that is a cool thing. I think of myself as an entrepreneur. I think of my guy as of myself as a very lucky person because, you know, where I have been successful over the years is in making ongoing relationships with people and identifying talent. Like I see someone who's talented and I know who they are. And I'm like, that's the guy I want to work with. Because remember what I said before, I know my limitations. I know where I'm not good. And that is, I think, everyone should be everybody's goal in life. It's like, where are you weak? And then find the guy who's better than you. And then associate yourself with him. You know, whether or not you hire him or you just associate yourself with him because you can learn from that guy or gal. That's, I think, my greatest skill is finding the people who are great and making them make me better. So you've got all this really great experience from a producerial side, from a storytelling side. Tell us a little bit about kind of when your eyes began to open up to the VR of it all, the augmented reality, VR, all, any of this immersive content industry. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up as a kid loving Star Trek. And, you know, it's interesting how, I mean, my building is full of nerds. I mean, like, I have the best nerds in the world. And they always say, hey, Neil, you're a nerd. And I'm like, I'm not a nerd, but I am a nerd. It's interesting. It's like, I love all aspects of that word because it means to me authenticity. Anyone who's a nerd in anything, they are as authentic as you can possibly be with that, what that is. And I don't feel as knowledgeable as things that when we talk about sort of nerd culture, and I can't tell you high level stuff on gaming or on comics or other things, you know, or cosplay or whatever, but I appreciate all of it. The nerd culture in me has allowed me to sort of develop into uh, the talent I am. And so Star Trek was one of those things that connected with me at a young age. And so when you look at uh, the holodeck, I was like, this has got to happen. 
you know? And I was like, is this science fiction or is this going to be science fact? And earlier we were chatting and I was saying, you know, I had implemented a VR scene in my first film, Hijacking Hollywood. It was not real. There was a lot of talk about VR after the movie Lawnmower Man and like 1992 or 91. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for that, you know. But um, it didn't happen. There were magazines written about it and community groups and whatever, and it didn't happen. And so I was always just sort of waiting for that moment and sort of my, that was one of the things in my inside that I wanted to be a part of. I wanted to be a part of this, this group, you know. About a year and a half ago, it suddenly became realized for me when I saw uh, you know, I can't remember. I wish I remember what the first thing I saw was, but I put on the gear and it was, you know, probably an Oculus and uh, it was connected to a computer. Nothing was labeled what I was looking at. And I was in a room and I was like, this is a terrible quality. The editing is terrible. The stitching is terrible, but it exists. And that's when I was like, this is now going to happen. So as you mentioned, there have been periods of VR excitement and enthusiasm before, but something seems distinctly different about this moment in time. What is unique or what is the tipping point that made all this reality? It's the phone. It's the mobile phone. There are 2 billion people in the world that have a mobile phone that is a smartphone. And that is the engine right now that powers a lot of the VR experiences. There's 50 million cardboards in the world. There's 2 million plus Samsung Galaxy S6, S7s with the uh, Samsung Gear. Quite simply, that makes VR possible. They have an accelerometer in the phone, and it, it can tell you where you are in the gyroscope. And suddenly, you can have a VR experience with two inches off your face with this, this phone. Soon, it'll be Bluetooth from that into other pair of glasses that are cooler. And, you know, the whole industry can change. But the fact that it exists, it's real, it's made me say it's going to move, and it's going to move in, in relative terms quickly. I mean, I think 2018 is going to be the real year where we're going to see it move. Why is that? There's a number of things, but right now I would say, you know, Apple's not in it, you know, and don't discount Apple, you know. So what are they waiting? What are they doing? You know, we, we've theorized, we've talked about it. You know, right now all of these uh, phones have a camera on the front and the back. It's just a software issue and a redesign issue to turn that into a sort of a bubble camera. Same thing, I mean, to change a laptop, you know, 10 years ago when you bought a laptop, you had to get an external camera to put on it. Now, no laptop comes without a camera. So these sort of... Uh, engineering changes are very quick and easy to do. And I think when you have that and then you have all of the money that's been thrown into the tech, it's just, it's going to happen. And, and it's going to it's gonna take a little bit more than a year from now. Apple will need to get into space and there'll be a few other things that need to happen. Bandwidth needs to be picked up. So allow for a year and change and then 2018 becomes, you know, that moment. But if you look back at the internet, you know, it was like 1993, 1994. And then when the real moment that I, I saw was when, AOL allowed for $20 a month that you could have unlimited service. Before that, you had to pay like with Prodigy and, you know, it was a ticking clock. And the, the internet didn't work well. But when AOL did that service at 20, 20 bucks a month, I think they got 20 million subscribers overnight. And that just changed everything. So the hardware is there today. It sounds like in many ways, the software has come a long way as well. What about the content for VR? That's my opportunity. And, and I'm looking to work to grab that. It's an opportunity because it's difficult. And, you know, I, I've met many producers that I've done business with over the last, you know, 20 something years. And I talk to them. And I'm like, you know, I'm all about VR. What are you doing? And they're like, oh, VR, I haven't really tried it. I, you know, I don't know about it. And it's just because it's not readily available uh, beyond the cardboard. And it's hard. And people, you know, we're all sort of in our own world, you know, and it's like, you know, whether you're a Time Warner and you're a giant aircraft carrier or you're 
a producer just trying to sell a sizzle reel, it's like, am I going to change my whole effort to something that isn't there yet? That's a roll of the dice. It's a big roll. And, and admittedly, by my own admission, it's going to be over a year before it gets there. So am I too soon? I say I'd rather be too soon than too late. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think one of the things that I've found interesting is, and you've mentioned this too, that the technical part will get there. It's not a matter of if, but when. My, I guess the on the on the flip side of that coin, when do you feel the consumer demand is going to match where the technical capabilities you know are, are headed towards? I think we're going to see it somewhere around 2018. There's going to be a couple of key moments. So PlayStation this year is going to move. Absolutely. There's 40-something million units out there, and they've pre-sold whatever, 10% of those are gone. I mean, in a blink of an eye. So, And it's awesome. I mean, have you guys tried the gaming experiences? I haven't tried the PS4. Or the, the PS, the, uh, this stuff is sick. Yeah. I mean, it's sick. And, and, and I'm not a gamer. Yeah. And I'm telling you, when gamers get their hands on this stuff, they are going to flip out. Just as a piece of math here, 50% of America plays games daily. That's half of America. That's a lot of people who are going to get excited about it. I've been reading some people say that out of all the current heavyweights that are kind of involved in the VR space right now, Sony is the best position just based on the fact of, you know, that the brand of the PlayStation, the fact that it's already in, was it 50 million homes in America? Everyone else sort of has to still ship their product to the consumer. Yes. Less so, you know, less of a concern for Sony. Yes, I would agree. I think Sony is going to be the winner right now. But again... What is Apple going to do? Mm-hmm. Who are they going to buy? They could buy Sony in the blink of an eye, and it would, it would mean nothing to them. Who are the other major players or potential entrants in VR? Again, I think Apple is the big one. Certainly, Samsung, they have made a very good mark. And they are, we talk about the different devices right now. So the, the Google Cardboard is the Honda Civic. But then you jump to the Samsung Gear, which we have here right in front of us. And this is kind of like, a, I'd say, a very high-end Mercedes-Benz. I mean, a really good Mercedes-Benz experience is noticeably different. And then you get into the Oculus uh, and the Vive, and you're, you're driving a Bugatti. That was a great analogy, by the way. I've, I've actually not, never heard it described in that sort of framework, but that actually makes a lot of sense when I'm thinking about kind of what is the difference in value from the experience side. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there are, I don't know how many Kickstarter campaigns with other stuff. But there will be other companies who will come to the table with something that's neat. There's a lot of cool stuff that's going to happen with eye tracking and, and, and user experience, being able to move around in spaces. I mean, the Vive, which obviously gives you spatial experience, but you have to be in a room with no furniture and you have to have these sensors. But that experience is like, that is a real deal. That's holodeck. That is right out of Star Trek. So, you know, the idea of my childhood nerd dreams coming true <laughs> is amazing. And I want to be a part of that. That's that's incredible. Why not time travel? And so we're going to be working on some tri- time travel, in fact. We're doing a piece. Let me tell you about a piece we're doing. I've always loved time travel. Again, Star Trek. They, you watch their movies. Every other movie is a time travel movie. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, wouldn't it be great to be able to go back in time and see key moments? And we're about to do that. So one of the most important seminal moments in the history of America is the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I'll put that up there, right up there with the uh, 9-11 disaster. These are two moments that uh, that rocked our country, our foundation. And we've all seen the moment. We all know what happened. But the people who were in New York who lived it, they had a different experience than anybody else. Anybody who was there in Dallas, they had a different experience. I mean, it's just different. You know, we talk about the grassy knoll. Where could it have been? What was it like? You know, I saw JFK. It's a good movie. But it's just like 
What was possible in that moment? Well, I would like to take you exactly to that moment. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is we went to Dallas, we took the camera, and we put it in the spot where Abraham Zabruder, who shot that footage, was standing. And then we've taken that film, and now we have put it into the plate that we created. And so you will be able to put the gear on and stand there, and you're there looking around full 360, and you're experiencing the moment as if it's right in front of you. Same thing with the 9-11. So we're doing that from various angles where you'll be there. Now, those are a little bit negative, obviously, but important moments in our history. You know, sure. History is not always pleasant, sure. but there are great moments that I want to be at as well. Like the I Have a Dream speech. We're going to be, take you there as well. So, you know, whether it's uplifting or serious or moments in sports history, you know, our, our one history channel is going to be doing that. How do you think these VR experiences will impact culture or society at large? How are we going to connect with one another and engage in, in living these experiences? Will it be in a traditional theater environment like we go and see motion pictures today? Is it going to be more personal and in the, in the ho- household? How do you anticipate this is going to change kind of the cultural fabric of America? It is going to unravel the fabric of America, America and the world. It's, it's interesting because your question is, we could talk for an hour on that one question. Very simply, somebody can hug somebody. There's a thing called haptic response. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-hmm. So you touch your phone. For those of you at home who don't know, but if you touch your phone and you're texting somebody and you feel the, the vibration, that's a haptic response. So this is stuff that exists, not like, oh, I think or I hope someday. Like I have seen this. So you can get a glove on that is a two-ply glove and it's full of sensors. And one of you guys could be in France and I could be here. We'd get into our gear and we would see our hand and we could shake hands and you would feel the pressure points just that right where those sensors are, it would give like a little bit of an air pressure. Same thing goes in a shoot 'em up game, right? And so I shoot you, you feel a pressure like it's a bullet, right? And just an air pocket. Well, now I have a haptic suit on and I want to hug my wife because I'm on a vacation and I put my arms around her and my fingertips, she can feel on the suit and I'm feeling the pressure on my fingertips. In some ways, people are afraid of VR because they say, oh, well, when the 64K screen becomes real and the quality is as real as the, the three of us are sitting here right now. And I, I'm like, oh, my God, what is the difference between reality and virtual reality? It's so perfect. Is that going to make me a shut in because I, I don't need to communicate with people? I say the exact opposite is going to happen. You can take your digital avatar and you can be included, inserted into any scene anywhere. And you could do that with your wife or your best friend or your buddy or your grandma who's in a hospital someplace else, she can suddenly be with you on that African savanna and experience it. And you could put your arm around her shoulder and, and give her a hug. That's real. That exists right now. And that is going to make our world way smaller than it already is. Way smaller. So I, I have, I'm an optimist by nature, but I think this is going to be things that's going to change the world in a very positive way. What are some of the other applications beyond, say, being closer to people who are far away, seeing other experiences or, or travel that you wouldn't normally yeah. be have the access or resources to do or seeing some sports moments or yeah. historical moments that are otherwise inaccessible? What are some of the other maybe broader applications of VR, AR technology? Well, it's the absolute greatest sales tool of all time and the greatest training tool of all time. We talked about football earlier today. You know, if you're a quarterback and I want to have you in a scene where you're taking reps but I don't want you to be hit every time. You can do that. You can put on the gear and I can create a computer simulation. I can shoot it through live action footage or all digital. You know, we all seen Jurassic Park. We believe dinosaurs exist, right? So I can create a scene that looks completely real to this quarterback and he can be sitting in his bedroom taking reps. So that's on the football side. 
I can do the same thing where you come to work at Mant VR. And by the way, we have this video. You come to Mant VR, you're like, where's the bathroom? Where is the kitchen? Where do I go? Where is the studio? Before you do anything, I sit you down in the conference room and I put a video on your head and it says, welcome to Mant VR. Here's your VR video. Welcome you to Mant VR. And it's a five minute video that takes you around Mant VR. So, you know, our building. So Clever. very meta. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, but it's like I, I have to practice what I preach. Right. And so the same thing can happen for the most simple training things, you know, it's like or complicated ones. Like we're talking to oil rig companies. You know, you're going to go work on an oil rig. I bet that's dangerous. Right. Wouldn't it be a good idea to have a five minute video that says, here's what you can expect when you get off the helicopter on the oil rig? You know, don't touch that. It'll electrocute you. <laughs> And so safety, training, sales, I mean, real estate, this is like, it, they're endless, medical, there are endless applications that will change our world. And then you throw in, you know, stuff like AI, and it's like, oh my God, what, what is that going to do? Huge opportunities. From a producer standpoint, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of all the different platforms out there, all the different types of hardware that are out there. And this is just, I guess, more of a technical question, but does it, is it difficult when there's not this, you know, it's, it's not... I imagine, you know, if you're a studio and there's kind of the VHS versus Betamax or DVD versus Blu-ray versus all these other platforms you have to specifically produce for, is that exist? does that exist right now? Or is it you create a singular experience and it ports to all those different nodes, I guess you call them? Yeah. So we're doing our best to create agnostic video. And so it pretty much you know, something that'll work on every platform. And we stay in sort of what we call 360 video space. But, you know, there are opportunities with uh, different devices like the Vive to have a different experience. So the Vive, you know, this again, this isn't a room where you have sensors and you can move around. You need to shoot that differently. You need to produce it differently if that's the goal of it. I tell people, you know, in a very simple sort of explanation, there's two ways of producing VR. There's inside out and outside in. So the inside out is kind of like where this microphone is. This is where the camera is and it would be shooting you and shooting you and shooting you. And that's inside out, everything around it. And so that's the experience. Outside in is like the Matrix. Remember the Matrix when the guy jumped up in the air and then we spun around him? That's a that's a ring camera. So anything in the center of that would give a spatial experience. So I think that's going to work great for like the NFL. So if you watch highlights on ESPN, you'll see a highlight sometimes where they'll have a shot of a guy on one sideline and then it'll ramp around to the other side. That's because they have a ring of cameras in the stadium. So you're going to be able to cool get some cool experiences and highlights from the outside in experience. But needs to be shot natively that way. And that's a completely different process from... Completely different. And that's not even getting into laser photography, which is going to be coming in the next couple of years, which is going to change everything. What is laser photography? It's literally lasers scanning a room down to a millimeter, and then you're going to have a whole thing scanned, and you'll be able to move around in it. What do you see as coming next? What are three predictions you have for online video as a kind of a broad category, or maybe more specifically just VR? I think one of the things you're going to see is, again, we, we look at these goggles. Everyone looks at the goggles and they say, you know, wow, you know, they, maybe they look really cool to some people. But I look at it and I'm like, this is a 1980s cell phone. <laughs> it's like Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. He's got this big phone. Greed is good as the phone. This is not going to last. This is a joke. What's going to happen is Apple or Samsung or somebody will come out with a pair of glasses that are really cool. They look like a pair of Ray-Bans. And you will activate that from the Bluetooth on your phone and it'll go right to the lens. You'll also be able to take your glasses into, you know, lens crafters and have them fitted with a pair of lenses that can work for AR and VR. There will be contact lenses. The patents have already been filed. That will happen. I think the, the big thing, which is, you know, stuff just happens. Like you wake up one day and then Steve Jobs is on a stage with a phone and he does that thing where he flips the phone and you see 
you know, that the, the callers just zing by and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then iPhone is just everywhere and it's just done. But that's only 10 years old. I mean, people can't realize like it just, it just happens. So what is the moment that's going to happen? I don't know, but I feel like it's going to be some kind of a chip and it's going to be AI and it's going to incorporate audio, video, everything. And it's going to be a, a brain implant at some point in the next decade. Should we be scared or should we be excited for that? <laughs> you know, I, I read an article. It's more than an article. It was like a big report. And it talks about AI, the smart people, way smarter than me. You know, there's a lot of people smarter than me, but these are the guys that are the super smart guys. And so like 98% of the super smart people all are in agreement that it's about 40 years from now when that Terminator moment is going to happen. And the only question is, is it going to kill us? They say, you know, sort of put it in context for it. Did you see the movie Her? Mm-hmm. Yep. Great film, right? Yep. So at the end of the movie, Scarlett Johansson computer character is trying to explain to, to um, Joaquin yeah. Phoenix, try to explain him, like, listen, I can't explain this to you, but I can't, but I'm doing great things, but I can't, I just couldn't explain it to you. And the, the reason that is, is because today, if we were to take a monkey and a man and we put them in the Empire State Building and we had them sitting there, the monkey and the man are so close. What do they say? Like 99%, you know, in the genome of it. It's just so, so close, but it's just off. The monkey can't understand that he's even in a building, much less that the man built that building. All right. And they are almost the same. Now, think about today if you, the man, were trying to have a conversation with an ant. You couldn't say to the ant, listen, this is where you're making your mistakes in life. I don't think you're really <laughs> making the right moves. Okay. That's that's a difference that is calculable that we can understand, right? Well, in 40 years when the AI does what it's going to do because of the folks at Facebook and at YouTube and all the other people who are doing whatever secret lab stuff that they're doing, it will be 400 trillion times the difference between a man and an ant. It's incomprehensible. So the machine is just going to do what it's going to do. It's either going to be like, let's make everyone's life better or this, these people are just in my way. Like I said, the smart people say it's about 40 years away and it's going to happen. So, but I think in before then, not to get off video too much, but I before, think before then there's going to be huge genetic uh, opportunities in science that are going to extend our lifespan. And so there's opportunities for two, 300 year life for people right, right now. What advice do you have for those working in traditional media and the big conglomerates, right? Viacom, Comcast, as they look at the VR space, what would you say to them? I'd say it's coming. It's interesting because, you know, Goldman Sachs did a report that says the business is going to be at 80 billion by 2025. And there's been a couple other reports that I've read that say it's, you know, 150 billion, 120 billion, 162 billion by 2020. That is in four years. That's crazy. You know, I, I don't know how they get those numbers because not enough people making content right now to <laughs> achieve those numbers, but there's certainly big numbers put on the deck side. But the fact of the matter is, is the experience is incredible when it's on the high end. If you can give people something, you know, again, where they can hug a loved one that's far away, I think that's going to be the most valuable part of it is connecting people. I mean, that's what, you know, back in the day before you guys were born, the Ma Bell, which was the, the the phone company, Bell, their ads were reach out and touch someone. That's what it was all about, was connecting with someone. Coca-Cola, their ad in the 70s, is all about bringing people together. I mean, we have to understand what human beings are about, and it's about being together. We are pack animals, and so VR allows for that. We all seen Close Encounters in Third Kind, right? And so the people that are in the VR space right now are like Richard Dreyfuss in Close Encounters. I'm one of these guys. Remember in, in Close Encounters where he goes 
to the mountain at the end. He's making this this mound in his living room. He's he's making this giant diorama of of the the thing in wherever it was Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And then he goes there. He does not know why he's doing this. He's just being drawn to it. And he goes there and they put out this fake story that there's been a, a chemical gas a train that has uh, derailed. And they even gas some animals, you know, just for looks. And so people would be like, I can't be there. And he got all the way to the site. And there were like 15 or 20 people that were there. These people put their lives at risk because they had been implanted in their brain with something from this spaceship that said, come to this location. That's what's happening in VR right now. Like when I go to conferences, there's hundreds or thousands of people who are all for some reason being drawn into this industry. It is pulling us in. And so I'm in it because I see the future in the storytelling. And that's what I do for a living. I'm a storyteller. But when I see others, a lot of them don't even know why they're there, but they're being drawn. That is a movement. That is a unique opportunity to be part of that. And it's going to expand soon. The more people get their hands on it, the more it's going to grow. Now, obviously, you've made a big transition from Man Brothers and producing traditional entertainment, television, motion pictures to focus 100% really on the VR opportunity. But that being said, if you were to start a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I would do VR. You know, I wouldn't. Here's I'll I'll make it really simple. Okay, so I'm going to give you guys options here. Okay, I've got a time machine. We're going to go back in time to 2006. We can take all of our knowledge. Okay, all of our collective knowledge right now. Going back in time, 2006. Whatever subject we're collectively passionate about, we'll discuss it in advance, but we're going to make a YouTube channel, 2006, and we're going to work on it very hard. We're going to make a minimum of two shows a week that we're going to post, and we're not going to stop. Okay? Who says we'll be successful? All of us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, right? Yep. No question about it. Yeah. No question at all. Okay. Let's Next question. 2016. Today. Right now. If you guys are ready, we're going to make the same thing right now. We're going to drop all we're doing, and we're going to make a traditional YouTube channel. Same subject. Whatever we pick for 2006, just shaking your head no. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck? Yep. Bad idea? Terrible. Terrible idea. And we're, we're, we're in agreement on this, right? No question about it. Well, that's where we are on YouTube 360 right now. Mm-hmm. We're in 2006. It's a blank slate. So that's where I'm betting my money. That's just one place I'm betting my money. But it, it, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to maybe take me a couple of years, but I'm going to take my knowledge from all of my background, all all the team I can get and the best people, and I'm going to make the best quality serialized content that I possibly can. Will somebody make better shit than me? Of course, somebody will, but some of my stuff's going to be great. It's all going to be decent. Nothing will be bad because man doesn't make anything bad or we don't put it out. If it's no good, if I make something and it's terrible, I promise you will not see the light of day. And that goes with the learning process. But just the one component of YouTube 360 is worth doing it. And Facebook 360. That's just their second and third and yep. fourth and PlayStation and everybody. 100%. And at this moment, if you go, if you do it right, and that's how I'm trying to do it is right, we will get market share. And big boys will see that. And, and I have the history already. So why not be in business with me? I'm going to have a lot of fun. And I'm going to make more relationships. You know, a, a large part of what we're doing is extending our brand to other content creators. So I'm I'm on the hunt for content creators. I'm hunt, hunting for that guy who's in his garage and does not have a building like I have, does not have the infrastructure that I have, but he has the talent and the passion. I want to find that guy. 
And he can email me at neil at mantvr.com anytime. I was just about to ask you, where can people find out more about MantVR and more about you? You go to mantvr.com or you email me directly anytime. I answer all my emails. We got a guy in the back, literally, who called me randomly off of a Periscope show I did, who no media background, nothing at all, college dropout. And now he's the star of the Pokemon Go show. There we go. Yeah. I love it. Well, Neil, thank you so much. This has been phenomenal to learn a lot more about VR, to play around with it and do some some hands-on demos and really get your perspective. I mean, I, th- I think you're right. The way that you framed it up about this being a unique moment in time and getting there early and having an opportunity as a media company to produce incredible content that brings people together and gives people experiences that they otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to. It's fantastic. Very Absolutely. cool. So thanks so much for being on the show. Really thank you, guys. This. Really appreciate you sharing your expertise. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Thank you.